0: This is success. This feeling that you have momentum in your life and that you're not stuck. And that if you are stuck, that you have the courage and you're able to set up access the good counsel that you need in order to get unstuck. From Business Insider,
1: I'm Rich Filoni. Christine Barbaric is the co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. It's a media company focused on empowering women by starting conversations about body image, politics, and careers. Refinery29 says it will connect with 425 million people this year across its site, social media, videos, and live events. Before launching Refinery in 2005 with co-founders Philippe, Justin, and Piero, Barbaric had spent her career in media and helped build the scrappy City Magazine. The lessons she learned there gave her the confidence she needed to take on Refinery29, which would turn out to be a more ambitious project than anyone expected.
0: I always knew I wanted to be involved in storytelling whether that was going to be in magazines books film it was important to me i feel deeply passionate about helping people you know today even to craft a narrative around something that is really important to them that they feel will you know really be useful and and resonate with with other people i mean nothing beats true stories when the opportunity came up to Possibly take the lead editor role at City. I just felt like it was exactly the right opportunity where I could figure this out and see if I could do it under the radar without completely humiliating myself <laughs> and prove to myself that I could run a magazine. I could craft a a point of view. I helped hire a creative director. You know, we staffed the whole team. We won an Asme Award. We got nominated for General Excellence. It was really life-affirming in a lot of ways.
1: What had you learned from that experience that you were able to bring to Refinery?
0: I mean, honestly, if I had to distill it, it would be confidence. Because I had worked at Condi Nast for nearly a decade before that. And I got incredible experience there, being an editor, working with incredibly talented writers, collaborating with different teams and crafting great stories but I really always knew that I wanted to run something. I was in my early 30s was really about proving to myself that I had the instincts and I had what it took to run something and make it successful and create a brand that was valuable to people and I miss that magazine.
1: And if you enjoyed this experience of creating something so much, why was there initially some reluctance to help build refinery?
0: Because I knew how hard it was. And also there was a lot of fear on my part because we didn't know what was happening in digital media at that point. There wasn't a lot of evidence at that point that this sort of medium was going to literally become the backbone of everything that every business is. I think we had a feeling that there was that potential, but at that point I was in my mid 30s and you know a lot of my friends were getting married at that point, having children, and here I'm like basically foregoing a salary, you know, moving in with my boyfriend to save money and figuring out how to make this work so we can actually get this up and running and I think that it's hard because at a certain point in your life you do crave security you do crave you know a little bit more permanence and even though I did crave those things what I've always craved more is opportunity and I think that I cannot say no to an exciting invitation to do something I feel needs to be done I cannot say no to it. And I literally left those margaritas with Philip and Justin. And I was like, oh, my God, I have to do this. (laughs) And this is in 2004 when we all started talking and starting to hatch a plan for Refinery29. There was a lot of interest and discussion about whether or not people would buy things online if e-commerce was going to be a viable means of, of retail and it's funny how that was still a question back then. Oh, it was such a question. I do remember having a lot of meetings with very big, established, you know, national department stores, and they were like, "Yeah, we don't really think we're gonna we're gonna do this e-commerce thing. We don't really think that's the way people want to shop." You know, everyone was had mobile phones at that point, but people weren't really using them in a way that was facilitating their everyday life in the way that it is now. They were really interested in doing something that, which I think was really revolutionary at the time, which was so exciting to me. They were thinking at that point, they wanted it to be sort of a search engine for independent boutiques in big cities, you know, how, because these were really businesses that didn't have the resources to be able to reach a bigger audience. But, you know, when we launched in 2005, just to give you a a sort of sense of the landscape at that point in digital, like Twitter wasn't around. I feel like it was Facebook and net a I can't really think of anybody else at that point, at least in our space, that had this really massive presence that were succeeding and that really gave us encouragement about what it was we wanted to accomplish. So after we launched in 2005, in June, it took us about six months to get everything up and running and to build a site and to design you know, the initial execution it was very clear to us very early on that it was the storytelling that people were responding to, and they were buying things. But I think what was what we were seeing was it was really exciting, and really rewarding was the storytelling that we were attaching to the people, the trends, the products, and um, street style was a really interesting phenomenon at that point. There was just a real a really deep and passionate interest in real people, not just models, not not about this sort of like beauty ideal that you know we have seen for decades in traditional magazines and that was something that Pierre and I really loved and identified with we didn 't really feel like we identified with traditional women 's media didn't really speak our language both of us read like music magazines and men's magazines and you know different kind like the New Yorker and stuff like that because women's magazines just the sense of kind of instilling these rules in people things you can do and you can't do wasn't really our perspective and it still isn't and those initial principles really have driven Refinery29 forward and informed so many of the choices that we've made and it's really like at the the seat of our foundation and I think has been an enormous part of our success. I think that having a really strong, honest and active mission that you can not just talk about but that you can actually sort of live and practice in your work and in your everyday life I think has been the game changer for us in a lot of ways.
1: It was a way of connecting with an audience in in a way that like previous magazines hadn't.
0: Yeah. I think it was, I think that, you know, a lot of those magazines have something special to offer for sure. But I think it was more that Pierre and I were really interested in the, the chance to communicate with people online. And at that point, a lot of content makers on digital weren't turning on their comments I don't know if you remember that, when the New York Times didn't have comments, and there was just like, this is a long time ago, but I think in the beginning it was really helpful for us because we got to mine all this incredible information and really steer us to a lot of the, the content and the stories that we pursued in, in you know the years to come. So it really was an important facet of how we actually sort of developed our our content strategy. And building that connection to our audience and our community is still such an important part of our success and our longevity. And I think for anybody, it, it, it is. Yeah, And in building the f- like setting
1: the foundation like at the very beginning, was there any difficulty to having two male co-founders for like a, a women's brand?
0: Well, I think in the beginning we weren't even sure it was going to be a women's media company. So it evolved, yeah. I think that what was happening was and we were all paying attention to this, you know, we really wanted to be of use to people. And we still have a a small male audience, you know, they're there, but you know, certainly not as sizable as our audience of women. But it was the women that were really responding. They were the ones that felt this was we were filling a void. And that was really satisfying. And Philip and Justin have always been incredibly receptive to mine and Pierre's opinions and, and we don't always agree. I mean, it's hard to have four founders, especially after we're almost at 14, it'll be 14 years next year. To be still together at this point is a testament to our commitment to our audience and our customers and certainly our team. But it's difficult. It's really difficult to compromise, especially for someone like me who has very strong opinions about things. I think when you're an editor, you know, you see things, you, you see them in your head in, in a different kind of way. And, and that's the way you sort of want to apply them. And it's been a, a tremendous life lesson over the last decade, really learning how to compromise Creatively and also compassionately, because I think that it's something that is really. De- I think your success depends on it.
1: Can you give me an example of maybe a conversation or something that was like a significant decision for the company where you had to learn how to how to do that compromise that you're talking about?
0: Well, I mean, I think uh, I think a big one is when we hired a chief content officer. You know, I was always the lead content person in the operation. And when video really began to, you know, be an important facet of any, you know, robust international media company's um, vision, at the time, I didn't have experience in video and, and, you know, originals. And our head of video, Amy Emmerich, she was someone that I, you know, she was our head of video. And we were meeting with people that could be our chief content officer. And, you know, at that point, you really have to sort of set your ego aside and really, really think about, like, what is going to be best for the company. And, you know, I'm very secure in, in, my, in my talent and my experience and, you know, in my ability to, to make great work. But I was also really excited about the opportunity to learn from somebody and to really develop my own toolbox And Amy was just somebody that had a completely different background than me. She'd worked at Vice. She'd done documentary films. She was just a really interesting maker. It was hard to find somebody that really, that didn't just have the potential to drive content across all these different mediums, but that was really awesome, you know, that really loved what Refinery29 stood for. And... I recommended her for the chief content officer role but when she was moving into this role I still say this to her sometimes I had such I was reassured by the fact that if she was in a in a room making big decisions about the direction of our content and I wasn't there I knew that she was speaking on my behalf I knew that she had the best of intentions when it came to protecting and preserving and nourishing our brand, and making sure that we did not lose sight of the mission that we all felt so committed to,
1: so it was core to this idea of compromise? was it learning how to set aside ego and how to trust more
0: yeah it's absolutely that I mean, I think that when you're building a company. For better or for worse, you know, you have blinders on in some ways. People have blind spots. And I think that because you've done something a certain way and it's worked, but I think that especially in the climate that we're in right now, it's like the industry is changing so rapidly, you know, how, how things are monetized, how things are distributed, how things are packaged. You have to be able to adapt really quickly. And you can't really let your ego get in the way of that. Otherwise, you lose. And I knew that not only had I fought for that title at the time, it wouldn't have been right. I wasn't prepared for it. I would have had to learn on the job, which would have been very disruptive. And I also wouldn't have had a mentor, you know, somebody that could really teach me about how to kind of integrate these new methods into our infrastructure. And Amy really did that.
1: At what point in the very early days did it go from kind of taking a look at like two fashion scenes into becoming more of, as we say, like this lifestyle brand where it was much more broader in scope? When did that that shift happen?
0: It all happened in the first like five years. And as I said earlier, it was really about looking at the performance of what stories were doing well and what people, you know, were sharing, what they were commenting on. And we did this piece that we ended up getting sponsored it was one of our earliest sponsored programs and it was the month of hair we casted ourselves with people that we knew and we let these women do their own hair you know so every day we sort of just featured a new woman with a different kind of hair frizzy hair curly hair straight hair you know shaved hair you know it was like every kind of hair natural hair it's such a simple idea but it was so revolutionary and people loved it And I think that that was really one of the keys to us understanding where content, storytelling and resources were really heading. We knew that we wanted to be problem solving for people. You know, we wanted our content to be of use, not just inspirational, but also, you know, essential to their everyday lives. So when we started to experiment across food, across beauty, that was a big moment for us because... Again, it was moving away from this traditional beauty ideal and beauty standards that we felt as though women had really outgrown and really speaking to a new generation of women that really wanted to see themselves reflected back. That's how we got into body positivity and diversity and, and just really making sure that the face of our brand and the content, the headlines in every way, you know, where we were present in our audience's lives, that it reflected what really put us on the map in the first place. And now with everything that's happening with our current administration, politically and culturally, it's become such an important moment for us to have a really big impact in news and breaking news. And I think that we have an incredible team that's led by our executive editor Yael Cohen and kind of opportunity we have to even just to get, you know, women out to vote in the midterm elections is just enormously important and just providing, again, resources, information that's useful to them that we really feel enhances their lives. And a lot of times, you know, what we'll talk about on the site is really controversial. Sometimes not everybody loves it and that's okay. But I think it's important to start to broach these sensitive topics and really open up a dialogue about them. Because I think it is the things that people don't know about that they fear the most. And we really see that as a big responsibility and opportunity to be able to responsibly report out, you know, some of those topics. And I'm sure you and your team know this. It's like you hope that you mostly get it right. I love the idea of getting it right all the time. I think that when you're publishing this much content this fast – it's hard to get it all right, but I think that you have to be able to learn from the mistakes and the times when your tone is off or you know, the headline is a little insensitive. Or it and doesn't I think register that, with the audience. Yeah. And I think sometimes you can't see those things until after it's out there in the world, like living a life and people are reacting to it and you're like, Oh, I didn't really see that. And again, it's like you can be in your own kind of bubble in that way. And that's why it's so important to have these open conversations with your colleagues and, and certainly an ongoing dialogue with the audience. You know, when I was first interviewing editors for our UK office, hearing about how much Refinery29 meant to women in the UK, because they felt like a lot of the women's media outlets were so conservative there. And the same with Germany. And Realizing, you know, when you get out of your sort of usual, sort of like everyday world and you realize, like, wow, you know, this site has really meant something to people. And honestly, that's what matters to me. And I hate disappointing people when I feel like I've disappointed an employee, when I feel like I've disappointed a segment of our audience, when they have felt ignored or overlooked or misunderstood. I take that personally and I probably shouldn't, but I do because I really, really care. And there are a lot of people like me in our company that care and really take the job home with them because of that mission.
1: And what is your ultimate vision for refinery? Is it keep getting bigger and bigger as big as it can get? Or is there kind of a point where you want to keep it within like a certain sphere?
0: Well, I think that The vision is always to, you know, really spread the gospel everywhere we can where we really feel like our audience needs us. It's just having a chance to merge our audience with other people's audiences and reach even more people with important forms of storytelling that we really feel don't just change our industry but change other industries and really help to sort of move society and culture forward.
1: Looking at the entirety of your career, what would you say was the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome?
0: In this situation, at this scale, it's confidence. It's having the confidence in myself that I am an important piece of this operation and that The people that I choose to join us in that mission are also the right people to be doing those jobs. And I think that when things get to be at this scale, (laughs) it's like being on the roof of the or the top floor of the Empire State Building. It's like, whoa, (laughs) what's going on here? It's like it becomes, you start to really feel the gravity of success and failure. You know, when you're making a magazine that's circulated to 35,000 people. You feel like you have your arms around, like, you know, all the consequences that could possibly, like, blow up in your face. And
1: if you're in a moment where you're dealing with that anxiety or just, I don't know, kind of like the the gravity of some decisions you're making, how would you deal with that as a leader? Does that become, like, a danger at some point if you are feeling anxiety when— You need to, like, be reassuring to everyone on your team?
0: Sure. I mean, I would love to think that I am the most composed person all the time, even in the most stressful moments. But I'm not. I'm sure that I have reacted in meetings or led a meeting or, you know, had a conversation even and people were like, what is up with her? (laughs) Or maybe even, you know, said worse things. Who knows? What is the gift is that I'm aware of it. I'm very self-aware, I'm really open to feedback. I don't have an office. I think I'm um, we're moving to a new floor in our building and I'll it'll be the first time in all this time that I will have an office and I'm really tense about it because I really like being in contact with, you know, everybody on my team. So I actually had them create this sort of sliding door that so <laughs> I can open it up so I can still kind of feel, you know, connected to what's happening. But I think that I really pay attention to how people react to the kind of feedback that I give, to the kind of direction that I give, to the the kind of criticism that I give. Because I know how I feel when it's given to me. That's the thing that makes me feel good when I go home at night is feeling like I wasn't an asshole and I wasn't being indignant about trying to get my way. And I used to be that way. How did you learn that? I think you just listen to yourself. You have to sort of be outside yourself, not just inside yourself. And whether it's a one-on-one or you're in a huge you know, executive meeting with 25 people, there have been meetings where I've said something, and it's literally like lifted everybody up. And I've seen moments where I've said something, and it really brought the meeting down. And I think that you always want to do the former. You always want to be enhancing, additive to what's happening. And I think that's a huge responsibility as an executive in a company, certainly as a founder is to really be conscious of the contribution that you're making. You know, am I moving things forward? Or am I becoming a roadblock? And you have to be able to ask yourself those questions. We've
1: talked a lot about reaching different levels of success. How do you personally define success?
0: To me, I'm the happiest and feel the most in balance and successful when I feel like I'm listening to my inner voice and that I am actually present in my life. I'm not just like on this treadmill churning stuff out and not feeling any personal connection to it. And I think the reality is in many businesses is that there's a lot of times when you're on that treadmill and you're just getting it out the door and you're just like moving shit off your desk and answering emails and taking care of a lot of the housekeeping, but... Success to me is feeling like I am not playing small and that I am really fully present in my work and my life, making sure that I am constantly accounting for those those decisions I have to make. I think it was Wayne Dyer that said it, the late Wayne Dyer, but it was all about the surge of energy that you get when you make a decision. It's dwelling too long in the place of indecision that really like just brings you down. It's like when people can't move forward, when they can't just like make a decision and move on, you know, whether or not that decision is the right decision, but it allows them to start, you know, just to forge ahead into the future and to start doing new things. That is where the energy comes from. And and I think that to me is success, this feeling that you have momentum in your life and that you're not stuck. And that if you are stuck, that you have the courage and, you're able to set of access the good counsel that you need in order to get unstuck because i think that that's also a reality of running a business is that there are places when you're stuck it's like a it's a department that's stuck it's a you know a leader that's stuck or it's a team that's stuck and i think that it's our jobs to really help people get unstuck and i think that you know ideally we want to make all the right decisions so we don't have to encounter those difficult conversations and moments or have to take difficult measures to do something to make a change. But inevitably, you're not doing a good job unless you're fucking up, you know, a little bit. <laughs> and it's like, you kind of need to be out there. You know, you got to get your hands dirty a little bit. You have to just like see what you are made of and what the team is made of and like what is possible. Because otherwise, it's just becomes this very generic, very safe, very predictable kind of timeline, and that doesn't interest me at all, and I don't think it interests a lot of people that are drawn to startups and drawn to building things.
1: And what's some advice that you would give to someone just starting out who would want to have a career like yours?
0: Well, I mean, I think (laughs) that—I think it really starts with putting your ego aside. I think that I had very, very big ambitions that I was going to be an editor right out of college. I had to be an assistant for a very long time. I didn't get my first official editor job till I was 26. That felt late to me, and I was really scared that I was falling behind. But you know, the way that my trajectory really unfolded was that I ended up working for other publishing executives in a supportive role, learning about the business, until the right opportunity opened up for me, which happened to be at Gourmet Magazine. To me, I think you have to be willing and open-minded and kind of do anything. And like I said, when it came to City Magazine, when it came to starting Refinery, I am very much a a proponent, a supporter of, believer of trusting your gut. Interviewing is, again, it's just like dating. It's like really paying attention to, can I see myself here? Is this something like, am I going to really feel regret if I don't get this job? or if I don't go out for this job. I think the other thing is, is when someone comes into your midst that has experience that you really admire, like just go out of your way to ask. You know, even if you can have like a 20-minute conversation with them. And that's just what you have to do. I cannot tell you how many people I have cold emailed or cold called over the last 25 years. People I've admired, many of them never responded, which is totally fine, but some of them did respond those are the sort of encouraging moments that remind you you're on the right path and that you have to keep tapping those kinds of people in order to propel yourself forward. Because we don't do it alone. I mean, I guess if you're like a, a novelist or something, you do it alone. But for most of us, you know, we need other people, you know, we depend on each other. When you remember that, you really become tremendously respectful and appreciative of what other people bring into your life and what you, you know, in turn bring to theirs. Well, thank you so much, Christine. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to This Is Success from Business Insider. Our show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and Sarah Wyman. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer, and I'm Rich Filoni. Before you go, we'll check in with Christine Barbaric one more time to see how our interview could have been very different if not for a key decision back in the day.
0: I got a call back for an audition for the real world when uh, I was in my 20s. Isn't that funny? For San Francisco.
1: Well, you didn't go?
0: <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't, I got a call, I, got, I auditioned, I got a call back and then, and then I didn't get, I didn't go to the, next, to the next round. But I got sort of like halfway through.
1: You could have been a reality TV show star. I mean,
0: it's really, I could have been. I know, it would have been a completely different professional career. (laughs) I know.
1: Next week on the show, we've got Beth Comstock, former vice chair of General Electric and a Nike board member. But she got the chief marketing role at GE, you could say she didn't have the traditional qualifications.
0: When I first got the CMO role, I took 90 days to like, literally, I got Phil Kotler textbooks, Phil Kotler, the kind of dean of marketing at, at Kellogg School, and, you know, read the four Ps of marketing. To
1: hear that episode and more, make sure you subscribe to our show. And while you're at it, give us a rating and leave a review letting us know what you think. It really helps us grow our audience. This is Success is a production of Insider Audio.